0: Hi, this is Jim Lesser from BBDO San Francisco, and welcome to another episode of the Fog City Chronicles. Today's interview is part of a series called The Women Who Run BBDO. Female leadership is such an important topic in our industry right now, and at BBDO, I've been very lucky to work with uh, some of the most dynamic leaders in our industry, who happen to be women, who are running offices and groups of offices. And I thought that if we could uh, pull their collective knowledge together, it might help to inspire the uh, female leaders of tomorrow. Today's interview is with Robin Fitzgerald. Robin is the chief creative officer of BBDO Atlanta. And I think um, you'll really enjoy this interview because Robin is the first creative person that um, we've talked to as part of this this series. Uh, She has a a wonderful sense of humor that comes through very clearly and also a great sense of business savvy. So I um, I think you'll really enjoy it. I know I do. So let me just tell you a little bit about Robin Fitzgerald. Robin is the chief creative officer of BBDO Atlanta, but before moving to Atlanta, Robin spent 15 years in LA at Crispin Porter and Bogusky, um, and at TBWA Shiat. Day. So at CP&B, she led high-profile work for uh, Netflix, Old Navy, Grey Poupon, and PayPal, where she developed the brand's first ever Super Bowl ad and took home its first lion. Um, and at Shiat, Robin worked on brands like Gatorade, Energizer, Nissan. Um, and she started her advertising career in Nebraska as a copywriter at Bozell after graduating from the University of Nebraska in Lincoln. Robin has been on the juries for d for One Show, for Clio's, for Art Directors Club, for New York festivals, and her work has been recognized by basically every major industry award show. Um, But perhaps even more exciting, her work has been consistently picked up by the non-advertising world, which is really cool. Things like being parodied on Saturday Night Live, Um, featured on NBC Nightly News, NPR, Entertainment Weekly, and nominated for an Emmy. Um, She's been named one of Business Insider's Most Creative People in Social Media Marketing and the Most Creative Women in Advertising. So, without further ado, Robin Fitzgerald. Thank you. You have lots of fans here, Um, people, uh, ex-CPB people in particular, including Andrew. Is Andrew here? No, Andrew had to do something, but Andrew, who worked for you at CPNB, I think he said it was his first job. He was like junior copywriter. Oh, yes. And he then went to Gray, New York, and now he's here. Anyway, there's lots of Robin fans. And Carter, too. Um, Let's start with background. So just kind of general, um, you know, how did you get into advertising? I'm very curious about University of Nebraska. If you could tell us a little bit about when you're at the University of Nebraska, maybe before that. How did advertising first sort of come onto your radar as a potential career?
1: Mm. Well, um, let's see, I'm trying to find a romantic way to say it other than it was a little bit of a default. Um, when, I, when I first went to uh, Nebraska, <clears throat> University of Nebraska, I was an international business major which I had no idea what that was, it just sounded exotic and it sounded like I got to live in another country. So, and I had taken four years of French and I really thought it would do something for me. Um, so I did that for a semester and then I decided I didn't wanna be in business school cause I had got the taste of a couple other business school classes and uh, a lot of uh, a lot of math, a lot more math classes than I ever really wanted to deal with. When my true passion was storytelling and poetry and you know um, writing, it had always been. I'd always been writing stories and um, since I was little. Uh, and I kept a journal, and so that had always been a passion of mine. So I talked to a couple people, switched over easily into journalism, still took some more French, thinking maybe I'd work in an advertising agency in Paris someday, which is still not out of the question. Um, and, and so that's, that's kind of where it, where it all started.
0: And so from journalism, was it, did, did advertising kind of come onto your, your radar, uh, while you were at school or did you come, get out of school and then start looking for a job and, and wander into advertising?
1: Yeah, it came into my consciousness in school. And I always, well, I always loved like watching 30 something and, you know, that, that, those kind of shows. It seems like there were a lot of screenwriters who were former advertising people at the time getting shows on the air. So um, I was kind of sucked into those and, and seemed like a fun thing to do, to be able to bounce a tennis ball around against a wall and just come up with ideas all day. And uh, so, yeah, it seemed alluring and I felt like I was pretty good at it in my classes from the start. Like I could turn it around quickly um, and it was fun. So I felt validation Early, even though I wouldn't say at the time Nebraska was really known as a portfolio school, or or that they gave you more a well-rounded idea about what advertising was. Um, so, um,
0: for those who are under thirty-five and don't know what thirty-something is, um, it was a, a, a TV <laughs> show. And Robin's right; there was a period where it seemed like every copywriter in advertising was like hiding a screenplay or a <laughs> teleplay in their desk. And they were yeah. just trying to get into Hollywood. And so uh, there were a lot of advertising themed shows, and 30 something was about these sort of neurotic um, advertising professionals who sat around throwing tennis mm-hmm. balls at the wall and coming up with ideas. It My, seemed Michael and very Elliot. Glamorous.
1: Yeah, Michael and Elliot. I feel like it's kind of like uh, what's a more recent one? Happy Ish? Isn't that an advertising guy who's, yeah?
0: It, it all goes back to Mad Men. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay, so. Um, Um, You were talking a little bit about about business and starting there and, and, you know, your love of math. Um, uh, But I'm curious what, from your perspective now that that you've been in the business, what do you think are like the most critical traits that someone really needs to be successful in our industry now? Not necessarily creative, but could be. But just sort of the general, you know, personal traits that you need to, to be successful in this business,
1: oh, I was going like psychology degree from the start, but then I thought, okay, you're talking about character traits, <laughs> but a psychology degree will help you, and uh, you're figuring out human behavior. Um, yeah, I mean, I think for me, the two the two most important traits are optimism and resilience, um, and I also think there must be some sort of um, gene that's found in advertising people who do this for a long time that you're just addicted to solving problems um there might be a little bit of a hero complex in there somewhere or you always <laughs> want to come in and save the day but even if you're not the one saving the day you just you have an addiction to um like solve things and it can be the smallest thing of what's the sign looking like for the christmas party to you know how are we going to save this brand from the brink of ruin, but you know, they're all problems that need some sort of uh, solution. And yeah.
0: Yeah. It's interesting that, um, among the, the BBDO values that were developed like, you know, years ago, there's, there's a few that are dead center on that optimism and resilience are definitely core among them. Um, anytime you take as much rejection as, as an ideas person does, you kind of need to just be able to Bounce right back. Yeah. Um, so I, I, was, I was wondering if, um, if uh, you could, l- like, take us through one or two of the steps in your career now from Bozell, because it seems like from uh, Bozell, which m- many people may not know even as an agency today, because it's not, it's not around anymore, but from Bozell in Nebraska that to- That wasn't
1: my fault, Jim. No. <laughs> <That wasn't- laughs> you
0: didn't put it under. I- A massive global network that's now gone. <laughs> Not, not it's a entirely your fault. It's evolved. a small
1: independent shop in Omaha now, run by some of the same <laughs> but, people I worked, I started off with as an intern. Yeah.
0: Um, but I was gonna say, I would love to hear about the the sort of journey of the steps to get to some of the best agencies in the world from Bozell, Nebraska.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I didn't go to a portfolio school. You know, I went to Nebraska and I came out and um, portfolio schools were around. I went to... I think it was like a, a two week workshop at VCU, Ad Center. That was just getting going at the time. This would have been in uh, 96. 97 is when I graduated school. And so when I came out, I would say my, my book wasn't really prepared. You know, I had a couple things that got me into an internship. But what I really spent the first three years of my career was probably doing what most people do in ad school, where, um, you know, I worked with a partner, a couple different partners, developed, um, Strategic thinking, my campaigns, and just really pushed it after hours. And I'd bring it into work as well. And um, so that was my time for those three years. And during that time, I would also, you know, I would devour one show annuals and CAs. And I would, anybody's work who I was jealous of, I would call them and then email them, you know, if they had that going. But they did have email (laughs) at that time. I'm not that old. So then, you know, I'd reach out and, um, get their take on my work. I'd send them some pieces and hopefully get a little bit of time and they were my teachers. Uh, So whoever I admired I would send stuff out and bug them and most of the time they were flattered enough to talk to me for five or ten minutes and that was enough to keep honing and then one of the uh, people that I think we, we know in common. Sally Hogshead was one of the people I connected with and sent her some work, because I admired Robert and Hogshead, this creative boutique in Venice Beach. It sounded like a cool place to work. And so I sent her some stuff too, got some feedback. And um, how we ended up going to LA from Nebraska is my husband works with horses, and he was working at Racetrack. And as you may guess, Nebraska is not like the Mecca of horse racing. Um, they would race about three months out of the year, he'd have to travel all over, so we didn't see each other much our first year of marriage. And so we said, we gotta figure out where we're gonna go that we can both you know, have a career and a life. And so we went out to LA, cause they had three race tracks at the time, four race tracks in Del Mar. And we went out there, met with some people, had some interviews, talked, and we were about to leave the next day. And I realized if we went back, we would we would never come out again you know we just wouldn't we would go back we'd figure out a way to make it work in nebraska and we just wouldn't do it so we went and found a real estate agent and we found an apartment and signed a lease before we got on the plane back and i don't know who the crazy people were who let us sign a lease because i didn't have a job he was working on the racetrack mucking stalls but they were really desperate um, to, to like offload this apartment that had been on the market for like three months. Later, we found out why, but who cares? That you know, it was our <laughs> starter place. And so we, you know, went back, I resigned and um, headed out to LA in 2000. So that was probably the biggest.
0: So you didn't actually have a job yet?
1: Did not have a job yet, no. The wow. good people That's at Bozell let me freelance while I was there, though. That was kind of nice. They threw me a couple bones. And um, pretty immediately though, I started working at Robert and Hogshead, so it was good, just took a leap.
0: right. and then from there, you were there for a bit and then um, and then you went into Crispin, right?
1: Yes, so um, uh, Jean Robert and Sally hogshead uh, broke broke up, and Sally opened the first l a outpost of of Crispin um, at the time, it was just the Miami office, and it was. R- Really blowing up, all the truth stuff was just coming out. Um, they had just uh, start begun to pitch mini, so when I joined, I was able to be a part of the mini pitch. Uh, so that was that was fantastic, and I was there for about two and a half years um, before they decided we don't want to have an LA office anymore. We're going to bring everything back to Miami. As we know, it's gone through a couple different evolutions. Yeah,
0: um, it just closed again. It
1: just closed again. I know, <laughs> but. But uh, we, um, our life was in L.A. My partner and I, too, did, we didn't want to move, so uh, we ended up going to Shiat Day then. So that was around 2004. So for the next six years, I was at Chiat, um working on all different kinds of brands and, um, you know, working with all kinds of interesting people.
0: Um, it's interesting that, that uh, to me, especially the getting started stories, because you have to go from someplace like Lincoln, Nebraska, where you're working at an agency, to making making a huge leap and committing to, you know, moving to LA and um, I'd love to come back to your husband's job with horses, by the way, which sounds fascinating and yeah. unusual, but um, but then kind of following your heart on where the best work was being done. And um, it seems like that's that kind of guided you and there were some maybe lucky steps along the way where Sally and John, you know, Close their agency, but it leads to something that's that's even better potentially with Crispin during its its heyday,
1: yeah, yeah, it was amazing, and even before I went with Sally, I actually went with Jean Robert for a little bit he had a he just opened up you know his own freelance shop, got an office space. So that was amazing for me as a 25-year-old copywriter working with this seasoned creative director who had Steinrober Helm, one of the hottest agencies in L.A. for a long time. And, and um, he's a brilliant mind. And just being able to work with him one-on-one for about, I think it was about nine months that we worked together um, was a great learning experience too. So I was really fortunate with that.
0: Um. You mentioned uh, you mentioned being obsessed with one show books and stuff uh-huh. early on in your career, which is something that uh, that I think um, was definitely a part of our culture as an as an agency community for a long time. Like everyone, especially especially um, young creatives, were just obsessed with knowing every single ad that was in every award annual yeah. and who did them and. Um, I'm curious now what you do to stay on top of the business just on a personal level to keep, you know, those things, are, alerts are flying at you every day of a new campaign that comes out. How do you personally stay on top of what's happening in our industry?
1: I, I absolutely do not, Jim. <laughs> I don't stay on top of it. <laughs> no, uh, well, I will say, Roy and Harriet's updates are helpful. I also really like um, uh, Cleo Muse, you know, uh, Tim Nudd's publication. I like mm-hmm. that just because it has such a different mix of opinion pieces, plus work, and it's. Um, I like how that's served up, and there there are other um, you know other emails I prescribe to, but those are probably the main ones I look at, and um, and of course once shows start rolling out, you can kind of you can recap through yeah. you know what's what's rising to the top and. Everything's served up for you there, so you can easily stay on top of it there.
0: Yep, yep. Um, okay, so shifting not, gears a little I, bit. I would I, say I it's, love not, to- it's
1: not as it's not as fun though. I love I love a book. I do love just being able to look at that big annual and and tracing the names. So I miss that yeah. part of it.
0: I know there's something uh, hard to beat about actual ink smeared on dead trees. Yes. It's it's. Uh, <laughs> It's got a certain texture that can't be beat yeah. um, by your phone beeping, yeah. Um, okay, so I wanted to ask you about, about uh, you know, as you, your career evolves and you're managing people and, um, you know, especially for, I think, a creative person, it's maybe not the, as instinctive at first to sort of start leading a team or a couple of teams or a few teams or whatever it might be. But now that you've, you've um, you know, made a transition into being a chief creative officer, how do you think about, how do you approach building a team? Um, you came to Atlanta, how do you look at, you know, building a team? What do you look for, for example, when you're hiring? Yeah. Um, or how do, do you have a certain interview process that you follow or, you know, what do you try to get out of an interview? Those types of things.
1: Yeah. Um. These are, that's a lot. Let me think about where to start with that one. I So when I came to, I've been in uh, Atlanta for a little over two years now. I started September 2016, and... Um, you know, for when I first got here, I was kind of analyzing, like, "Hey, here's my group, here's my inherited family, you know, and let's let's see who's working and what's working, and is everybody paired up the right way, and are we working on the right clients?" And you know, there was that kind of analyzation first, and then just getting to know the clients and seeing if everybody was in the right spot. And we've we've I feel like we've been uh, like most agencies, we felt different every six months. You know, things come and go and new challenges are presented and some you know you get a little smaller and bigger and all of that so uh, with the group I have right now um, I would say you know most of them probably you know 70% of them are ones people that I've brought in over the last um, over the last uh, two two and a half years so when I what I look for when I'm hiring people because I've had some you know team members go come and go you know if there's a uh kind of an introverted writer. I look for her partner to be somebody who's gonna bring out, you know, that that uh, louder side of her and say like, it's okay to be this, you know, <laughs> crazy one in the corner. You know, I'm doing it already for you. I've made people stare at me, you know, come on out of your shell. So I'm looking to to um kind of help that person grow in that way and it's or you know help somebody be a better presenter or vice versa. I was kind of looking for how I can mix the chemistry a little bit with some of those hires. As far as what I'm looking for in a hire I mean one of the first things as far as a creative I'm looking at their book first just to see is there something in there that um, I love I wish I'd made. It doesn't have to be every piece but are there at least two or three things that I'm remembering about this person. And then when I bring them in I want them to um, I want them to ask me a lot of questions because it shows me their level of energy and their hunger. And I want them to, it's kind of weird. Like, you know, some people are just a little dead in the eyes, you know, or they're just, (laughs) they're going through the motions. I look for a little mischief in the eyes. And, you know, some people can say it's, You know, it can be an ego, it can be an ego on a young writer where somebody's like, yeah, you know, and I could just see it. I'm like, yeah, you're going to be trouble, but I like it, you know, (laughs) Um, or there's somebody who's just, uh, you know, there's there's a hire we just brought in from L.A. and. um, she's funny. She is, she loves the Twilight Zone, and I would say she is a bit from another dimension. And she is, uh, you know, she kind of almost doesn't even make eye contact with you, but then when she says something, it's like landing it, you know? And so I, I get um, excited about that, that personality coming through in the interview and not trying to just be who I think, who you think I want you to be. Yeah, so.
0: That's great. Do you have any specific... Favorite interview question, or or um, interview, you know, sequence of questions, or anything like that, or is it more just conversational and you look for the subtext?
1: Yeah, it's pretty conversational. Um, if uh, one one thing I do like to ask people, just to kind of find where where their passions lie, I ask them what job they'd be interviewing for if they weren't like what job and in what industry they'd be interviewing for if it was if they weren't interviewing with me right now. Because um, mm-hmm. it's, you know, sometimes they're like, oh, I would be at a museum and I would have been a curator. But yeah, I'm here because I have to pay the rent, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but at least they're honest with themselves and, you know, right. just kind of can break the ice a little bit.
0: Um, I like what you said about uh, the team aspect of it because, um, as I mentioned, this, this secret, sequ- Series that we've been doing of interviewing the women who run BBDO, um, you're the first chief creative officer and the first creative director that we've talked to, so there is a unique dynamic in in creative pairing, and the idea that you you know you have to sort of balance them out or bring you know like the the, uh, the obvious thing is like John Lennon and Paul McCartney grew up around the block from each other, and if they hadn't done that you know like there never would have been a Beatles, so some of your role as chief creative officer is to facilitate those magical pairings that can create things that are that are different,
1: right? Yeah. Yeah, and things can get messed up too, you know, like if somebody's partner's gone, or, um, you know, sometimes people form trios to work on things it was two designers, and then a writer can feel ganged up on. If the chemistry is not right, it can throw the whole group off. They don't make any hit right. records anymore. So, right. um, yeah, it gets tricky, but then you you, know, you figure that out and keep people separate. <laughs> right.
0: Um, so so building on that, with in terms of what you've you've uh, you know now learned as a as a leader in the industry, um, are there things that you c- do consciously to create a certain environment at at your office? You know, at at BBDO Atlanta, are there things you try to work on to create a certain culture that reflects the way you? Want um, the office to feel?
1: Yeah, you know we do. We do several things. It's funny. Um, I think a lot of us in advertising and in creative, especially, we're just competitive by nature. So um, we we put we put out there just uh, a lot of competitive games, just to kind of keep people riled up between pitches and <laughs> things like that. So. Um, you know, one of uh, our group creative director Craig, he came up with this idea to do a Smasher Trasher list. So we have a an office playlist, and you know, somebody gets voted on. You know, they had the Smasher, so they get this big ACDC, You Rock, You Will, you know, this flag, and uh, then the Trasher gets trashed mercilessly on the you know public email. So that's been going on for a while, and it's been a big hit. Um, we do that, and we do. Um, we had like a, a chili cook-off, a bake-off, lots of cooking things like that. And it's amazing how many people turn up for this cutthroat competition um, there. You know, and it, it involves people, I think, more so than than just the creatives, you know, because obviously there's, there's a lot of fire up at the wall when you're talking ideas and people get protective and there's that kind of piece. But when you have somebody from accounting um, over there, you know, holding a pie server out in front of your face, uh, in a malicious way, then it's really turning it up and it feels like more of a family that way. <laughs>
0: that's great. Across departments. yeah. Competitive cooking yeah. is an element we so, should so definitely yeah. add to our repertoire. So there is,
1: there's the competitive and then there's also, you know, making rewards less about a huge amount of money and some of that's just because of financial reasons, but making uh, a... Making, uh, recognition and uh, a rewarding feeling of coming to work more personal. So you know I, I strive to do that and give um, direct feedback to people on work and explain to them and if they want to spend more time let's talk it through but also you know like this morning we had uh, we have creative powwows every week on Wednesdays and um, you know people can come in and they can raise their hand if they're like shit I know I said I was going to have this whole uh, see, I done by Thursday, but I only have one page, I need help, you know. There's, there's stuff that we can all discuss and we kind of go through. And this morning, we did like a little bit of a, a Christmas creative powwow. So um, I became slightly obsessed with comic books over the last few weeks, and I spent three hours at a comic book on Saturday, a comic book store, with people that looked a lot like, you know, the guy from The Simpsons. Um, with his beard, I don't know what that guy's name is. But anyway, I spent three hours there finding a comic book that I thought reflected each of uh, my creatives and wrote a little, little story thing about it and gave them their comics and this little comic book notebook um, because, you know, honestly, they have been, I told them I think they've been superheroes throughout this whole year. We've had ups and downs, and so um, I got to call out each one of their, their superpowers through that, and it was good. Nobody nice. cried. There was eggnog and rum, but nobody cried, don't worry. <laughs> so we, ke- a creative we kept pow-wow, it in check.
0: It? Oh, sorry, Robin. say it again.
1: I just said we kept it in check. Yeah, it was fine.
0: Oh, good. Um, a creative powwow meaning like a department meeting, or? Yeah. or OK. Yeah. Um, so
1: our project manager, our resource managers there, and the creatives, whoever can make it. And we, we uh, you know just go around the room and kind of highlight the projects. We know everything that's going on, but just if there's somebody stuck, and sometimes somebody can talk about a script and share it with somebody else that normally wouldn't touch the account, so I think that's good.
0: Um, okay, so um, you mentioned uh, working, you know, um, looking at a wall full of ideas, and, and obviously a big part of your role is, you know, people bringing ideas and, and putting them on a wall, and, and you sort of trying to work through where the idea is that's the most powerful, and doing what a creative director does. And I, I'm just curious for you if you have any sort of um, methodology or, or a way that you approach it. Because I think one of the great mysteries of, like, how are you a good creative director for a lot of people is, is, how do you know that one's better than that one? How do you know, you know, when there's 50 ideas on the wall, how do you feel, you know, how do you know, which one is the one that's going to be the big idea, even though it still has such a long way to go?
1: That's a great question, <laughs> that is a great question. Um, it's another leap sometimes, but it is informed, I would say, by strategy and gut, and and being able to kind of just fill in the spaces a little bit when you're looking at it. And if, um, you know, it's it's interesting, I went to this, to this uh, retreat, it was kind of about finding purpose and ideas, and um, it was a few months back. And one of the women who came to talk at the retreat was the the woman who invented uh, poo Puri Are you guys familiar with poo Puri oh, yeah. You know the woo of poo. She also has this book, and <laughs> and um, so she invented this. And she said, you know, she had this idea for so long, and nobody believed in it. But she couldn't ignore this idea. She couldn't let it go. And so the way she talked about ideas was that they were these living things, like living things like you and me and, what, you know, and you have a chemistry. Like we're either going to keep talking naturally or it's going to become pained and, you know, we'll just kind of be like, all right, nice to see you, Jim, and I'll move on. And there's a, a chemistry and um, a reaction and an idea that pulls you. So if it is alive enough for you, you'll make it come more alive, you know? So I think that's part of it. It really struck me when I heard her say that because I think that's the feeling I get when I see some a certain sentence on a wall, and I'm like, go. Oh, I don't know what that is exactly yet, but it's saying something to me, and I think it's something, and it's like I locked eyes with somebody, and I'm not gonna ignore this because there's something, I'm feeling something here. So there's there's part of that, and then, you go on a couple dates with the idea. You fill out some scripts and some some social, and it's like, oh, it fizzled. Or no, it's it's more amazing than I thought. Let's have babies. You know, like it's it's gone. <laughs> it's gone farther. So it it really struck me when she talked about that and. Um, I think it's true. And I think it's true when we sell ideas as well because you've been in a room where you're trying to sell and you just love it and you can't get over the fact of like, why isn't my client seeing the brilliance of this? And it's just like, this this is not the one for them. You know, it could, you could do all the rationalization. It could tick all the strategic boxes, but sometimes it's not gonna be the one. Um, Uh And so, (laughs) yeah.
0: Um, okay, so uh, in terms of uh, just another leadership question for you, as you think, think back on, um, you know, being at some of the, the, the great agencies and the agencies that got you to great agencies, um, and then you move into a role where you are, you know, you're the boss, um, are there things that you consciously learn? you consciously, I guess, stole from the people who you thought were really good bosses? Where you were, you know, where thing, or on the flip side, are there things where you're like, well, I know I'm never going to do that because so and so was, you know, made work miserable for six months when I worked for them. Um, so any anything that you'd be willing to share on on things where you noticed from great leaders in your career, like I'm definitely going to going to use that because they're really effective with that.
1: I've got bits of, I've got, I've got bits of both. I'll tell you one thing that I swore I would never do, and I don't do, is I remember um, coming up, and I won't give names of the people, obviously, or at least on this one. I'll give you credit to the person that I, I like the other one, but um, having, you know, when you're when you're putting work forward and you're submitting it for awards, um, I've had creative directors who write their names on as writer, you know, if if they were in the room or they did something like that and and i just think that's absolute shit to do because your job as a creative director is to um, drop ideas massage ideas put it in somebody's head or you know take something that is uh, embryonic and and bring it out it's not to take the credit from that person is to help them grow into the writer they're supposed to be and um, I remember it drove me crazy and I just said I'm never ever ever gonna do that Um, and it's it's a ridiculous thing because as a creative director, a CCO, an ECD, a global CCO, whatever your name is still connected to the work and you're still a part of doing it um, from a different angle and so I just think that reprehensible behavior. So that's off the list. Um, and the bit of advice that I still, um, I'd probably have it tattooed if I ever was, could ever get a tattoo. But I remember having a conversation with Andrew Keller, uh, who I worked with at Crispin. And, um, you know, he he was talking about just giving feedback to people. And, and one of the things I learned from him is, you know, just be... Be absolutely direct with people. Don't waste anybody's time. When you're when you're not direct, when you're not um, clear, you're not helping anybody. You know, he told me this this uh, saying of like the meanest thing you can do is be too nice. You know, sometimes I think when we're we're trying to find something, like you don't you don't want somebody to walk out if they have ten things on the wall and nothing's hitting. You're like, well, maybe that one. Let's see if we can work on it a little more when you know that you didn't feel that chemistry hit like we were talking about with the Alive ideas. Um, so being conscious of that all the time because, uh, you know, it's, it is a balance of being a the person you want to be. You don't have to be... Um, you know, I don't think a monster or a dick or whatever to get great advertising. I don't believe you do. I think you can be direct and be kind, and those things can coexist but um it's it's um, definitely a balance that you have to find, and I always like that that notion of the meanest thing you can be is too nice because it's absolutely true.
0: I love that that's a great uh it's a great way it, a great way to sort of um, encapsulate the idea of radical transparency which is popular in silicon valley and business right now you know people talk about a lot or radical candor where yeah. you know i just i just want it straight so i can be really efficient and get things done yeah. Yeah. don't try to yeah. be don't try to nice me to death and, right. and and then i end up spinning my wheels
1: yeah and we don't like that from clients either you know it's like right. just tell us yeah
0: <laughs> just, t- so just true. tell us
1: what your issue is and then we'll find a solution don't you don't even have to be nice and try to help us solve it. You, yeah, we, we just cut to the chase. It's great.
0: It's so true. Yeah. And I've heard Andrew say many times, we'd much rather have a fast no than a long protracted maybe.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so true. Um, so I would, speaking of work, let's let's talk a little bit about some of the work that, um, that you've been a part of over your career. Um, I was wondering if you have any examples of just maybe the, the the work you're most proud of, in the sense that the brief that came in was something maybe that was fairly basic or um, you know sort of straightforward, but you managed to turn it into something really special.
1: Yeah, um, one of those comes to mind. As far as that, that's a great add to that. Of, of you know, how did the brief come in and how did you turn it? We once. Um, Working on PayPal, this was just a couple years back, it was probably around 2015, we had a brief where they were gonna partner with Airbnb and they wanted to create a coupon. And the brief was just, hey, we wanna do a couple banner ads and um, when you book with PayPal, you'll get a $50 coupon on your next day at Airbnb. It was one of those complicated things. It wasn't even like instantly like take off. <laughs> it's like on your next day, you'll do this. and. And I just remember thinking, like, this is Airbnb and PayPal. These are two of the most well known um, you know tech companies. People love these companies. We're not doing anything cool with them coming together and um, so we really pushed the brief and we uh, we pushed the teams and we did end up giving them a coupon eventually, but the front half of it, the casing of it, uh, became much more interesting. We created um, this tool that we called Meet Halfway. So basically, what you could do is, you know, I could, um, you know, find you on Facebook. I'd put in Jim, and it would give us the, our, our halfway point between Atlanta and San Francisco. And then it would bring up the Airbnbs that were in that area. So then you could book that with PayPal and get $50 off that Airbnb stay. So it was just kind of this cool thing of two companies meeting halfway and friends meeting halfway. And it just seemed to make a lot more sense than just making a coupon. Um, And it was fun. And that was the one that got them their first first lion in 2016. Oh, that's great. So yeah, That's Uh, a
0: great story. Yeah, Yeah, and a a really cool, unique product where one of the things I, I always loved about that specific Project that you did is that the idea is so simple. The halfway meeting point for two friends and then Airbnbs pop up localized. Yeah. Right? yeah. It's so simple and they'd never done anything like that before and it came from creative people in an ad, in an ad agency. I mean, like that's really adding genuine value to the client relationship. Um, so I always love that one. Um, okay, so I want to ask you also about one of your other most famous pieces of work that you've um, been a part of, which is the Grey Poupon work. And, um, and part of the reason is because it was so fabulous, and part of the reason is because we have a funny connection on it. So um, that, the, the, the work that you did was the first time Grey Poupon had advertised in many, many years, and it was spoofing the old original Grey Poupon ad. Yes. So the old original Grey Poupon ad is an ad from my childhood, because my father was in advertising, and he um, ran the agency that did that ad.
1: So really? The,
0: yeah, so he the made original, that ad. He made that ad, and Whoa. so. But here's the really funny part. I always um, he he told me that the creative team that did that ad, the copywriter. So you, you, for anyone who doesn't know the ad, two limos pull up next to each other, and one of them sticks his hand out and says, like, excuse me, do you have any Grey Poupon? And the other guy goes, yeah, of course. And he hands it to him. So it's this very, like, fussy, fancy ad from the 70s. And the guy who um, created it, the copywriter's name was Larry Elegant.
1: Larry Elegant.
0: Hmm. (laughs) Isn't that ironic?
1: (laughs) So apropos. So anyway,
0: I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about how that campaign came about, because it was such a big, big deal um, when you did that. Yeah, work.
1: absolutely. So uh, yeah, it holds a special place in my heart. I love Grey Poupon. I have a bottle of two-year-old Grey Poupon in my <laughs> in my refrigerator right now because it lasts forever. Um, <laughs> that's part of the marketing problem. It lasts forever. <laughs> but uh, so it was interesting. We started working with Grey Poupon, a Craft brand, and. Uh, Kraft was, was uh, doing Mac and cheese out of Boulder, and so we pitched for a Gray Poupon and, and won that account. And um, they were really tentative. actually it took us a while to get to the TV spot. What they wanted to do first was see if people were even cared about um, doing anything with mustard. It was, seemed like a very low-interest category. And they wanted to see if they could get any, uh, any traction on social. So what we did first is we created this idea called the Society of Good Taste, where they had so many, like the situation for Grey Poupon Social was they basically had about, uh, I think it was like 1,700 people, 1,700 fans on their page. And so it was like, it's probably gonna be useless to try to get, you know, a million likes. Like how, so how do we turn this, negative into something positive. And so we came up with this idea of creating the Society of Good Taste. It was an elite club on Facebook that you had to apply to the page to become a fan. So that kind of kicked things off for Grey Poupon. And they they got a great reaction, uh, received more quality fans than ever before, than probably the most quality fans on, on Facebook at the time. And so it was from that success that they said, hey, I think we wanna do something bigger. And we'd love to figure out how to do you know because we should we they they'd first asked about like you know, just some regular ideas, what would you do for mustard, but then they said, we really like to do something around this um, the notion of the heritage, because we haven't been on TV for so long, so what would you guys do and um, And we thought, hey, why don't we tell the rest of the story because you kind of want to know what happens after The guy, you know, all they do is they exchange the mustard and then it freeze frames, doesn't it? And then, (laughs) and you're like, what happened? Like, did he ever get the mustard back? Did did they just stay that way side by side driving down the highway? Like nobody knew. And so we we wanted to make people care again. And um, we worked with, uh, Brian Buckley was the director on that and just tried to make the biggest, most preposterous uh, rest of the story that we could.
0: I think it was definitely the most exciting limo chase scene in advertising history.
1: Oh, that was so fun. We got to launch one uh, in the That was great. That was, that was a highlight. <laughs>
0: that was that, that's Fabergé awesome. Fabergé egg bombs.
1: Um, yeah, it was good.
0: Um, so turning to uh, the, the other side of the equation, just learning from challenges with, within the work or within briefs. Are there any examples, um, as you look back, of facing into client crises where, um, you know, you learn something in the end, but it was it was pretty challenging in the moment?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, there are some recent ones that are painful, you know? We, uh, Toys R Us was one of our clients and they, went into bankruptcy and now everything's closed and it's very sad and we have to buy all our toys from Amazon. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, that one that one was a rough one and I'd been working for them, working with them for about a year and a half. Uh, and I think the thing I learned from that is I wish we could have been working with them for more of a business solution side four years ago and be seen as a, a business partner um, because I, I I honestly don't think it was a, an advertising thing that could have saved that situation. <laughs> and it's sad because we have so much love. And the other thing I didn't learn is that we would never stop trying from it, you know, because everybody put their heart and soul into uh, trying to will that will that brand to survive. So that was a tough one.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, there was some beautiful work that, that you and your team did, you know, towards the end there. It's a shame, but you're right. It wasn't wasn't ultimately an advertising problem. It
1: wasn't. Yeah, that one. It was an problem. We couldn't solve problem. that. We wanted. <laughs> we wish we could have solved that problem, but it didn't help. But, uh, but thanks for that. Um, yeah, I have a, a a funnier story about things going wrong. I, uh, you know, a uh, back at Shiat, working on Gatorade, we had a we had a cultural snafu that hit us, um, and. Yeah, basically we had just launched a product for Tiger Woods, who at the time was at the top of his game, Gatorade had come out with this product called Focus that had theanine in it, which I'm sure is completely organic, and (laughs) it it helped you, um, you know, lock in, I guess, your focus, helped you have the mental acuity of Tiger Woods in whatever task you were going forward. Then it came with all the flavors too, like blue ice and, and all that, and grape. And we had created this campaign around it. It took us months. Um, I, I had a baby during the time. And it, was, it took us a long time because we did some animation and we worked with Disney, ex-Disney animators, and we had this charming little campaign about young Tiger as a boy and learning from his parents and the forest animals. It was called the Woods of Wisdom. And the campaign launched and it was basically two months later, Tiger was, um, had his disastrous downfall. His wife found his phone with all of his girlfriends in it, and his mirage of America's sweetheart. I don't know if he was ever America's sweetheart, but at least he was a good, clean athlete, kind of uh, fell away. And he lost a lot of sponsorships, and they pulled focus from the shelves. So. I don't know what I learned from that one, either. (laughs) I don't know. But I do remember sitting in a room with Tiger, and the uh, CMO of Gatorade was pregnant. I was pregnant, and um, his wife, Elin, still his wife, was with him, and she was pregnant, and she was approving some of the scripts and the stories. And people ask if he played footsie with me under the table, but he absolutely did not. He did not, nor the CMO of Gatorade. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Good to hear.
1: Yes, thanks.
0: So we're taking some questions from the um, the group that's assembled here in San Francisco, and Jackie wants to know from Robin if she weren't in advertising, would she be some other kind of writer for, uh, you know, comedy on SNL, or would she be a novelist, or or what? Where would where would her heart take her?
1: Oh my gosh, I will. Oh, you know. So I would love to be a writer for SNL. That would be amazing. I actually uh, crossed paths on the Santa Monica Pier one time with Tina Fey. She was with her daughter. And I was with my best friend and our two kids. And um, it was one of those, my friend kept looking at me like, why don't you talk to her? She's just over there with her kid. Go up and tell her you're a writer. Go tell her this is your chance. I'm like, she's with her kid. I'm not gonna do it right now. But I think back to that moment of, what could have been? Um, maybe she'll listen. Maybe she'll listen to this and come find me. She'll find the parody she probably did as head writer when we were working on Old Navy. Um, but the other thing is, uh, I, I also am a, I want to. I think every writer has some sort of chapter or an outline of a book, if it's not a screenplay, some sort of book. And I have. Um, I have one as well. Uh, that it's more, it's more of a personal story um, of my family and, and so I, I do have that. And it's interesting. I don't know if you heard about this. The, um, I thought it was, it was pretty brilliant from Miami Ad School where they sent out these unfinished books to a lot of copywriters in the industry. So, um, and they, what they want to do is they want to create a novel of unfinished novels so I got one that already has a cover on it. It says a novel of unfinished novels with a chapter written by Robin Fitzgerald. So they're sending them out to everybody with the hopes of getting my shoddily put together um, first you know, couple chapters. So I'm weighing it. It's, it's provocative, but I'm not sure. <laughs> it's like, then it's out there. What's going to happen to it? But I thought it was a good idea of them to, to get the conversation started.
0: Well, you mentioned um, Saturday Night Live parodied one of your ads, you said it was Old Navy?
1: It was Old Navy, yes. Um, very parable. <laughs> those Old Navy ads. And I will say, while working on Old Navy, I probably lived out all of my 90s B-list actor dreams, like everybody from, you know, the cast of 90210 um, to, like the cast of Airplane. I mean, I, I, that's saying a bad thing, saying b level. Like, these are amazing people from the 90s. I love them. Um, and one of them, we brought in, it was a spring dress spot, and we brought in Blossom, who's Mio- Mayim Bialik. We brought in Blossom, and we had uh, her being this bee lady who had all these mechanical bees going around her while making dresses, and uh, and Joey Lawrence, who was her brother on the show, Blossom, came in and said, whoa, to the dresses at the end. It was Old Navy. You have to, like, give me a little license. And, <laughs> and so we, we were willing to have fun and be cheeky all the time. And so I remember watching Saturday Night Live. I was actually on the East Coast at the time visiting my parents. I think it was over the holidays. And I was, you know, doing what I did when I was 12 years old with them, sitting on their couch, eating the snacks. And then we were watching Saturday Night Live together. And um, all of a sudden on on Saturday Night Live I see Fred Armisen coming in, uh oh wait, no, it was it was Andy Sandberg comes in and he's dressed as as Mayum Bialik and he's and he has the old Navy logo behind him and he goes, This you know, something like you know, the sales at Old Navy are surely going to be terrific." And then they had Fred Armisen come in, and he had like a shirtless thing, he's like, whoa. And I got all the shivers on me, As so I was like, Mom, Dad, that's it at Old Navy <laughs> Saturday Night Live, just parodied it. And um, they had no idea what I was talking about. I had to like rewind and tell them afterwards. But it was, uh, it was an exciting time. I felt like that was the crescendo of my career, <laughs> like, getting that, getting uh, Fred and, and Andy to to parody, but it was funny. It was ridiculous.
0: Certainly a high point. There's got yeah. th- there's, <laughs> it's a short list of uh, of people who've had their ads parodied on Saturday Night Live. That's 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 a, an accomplishment for sure. Um, is there, uh, is there anything? Uh, one of the things I I like to hear from people who are now leading groups is is there as you look back on your career and you're starting out is there anything that that younger people today in the industry could do if if they could just add one or two tricks to their toolkit it would help them catapult themselves forward like as you look whether it's to your team now or think back on you know your own career where Something clicked, and you're like, "Oh, if I'd only known that earlier, I really could have uh, have made that change sooner."
1: Yeah, you know, something that um, I've learned from some of the people that I've hired is uh, ask for time outside of uh, you know just going over work and going over the immediate project in front of you. So um, one of the art directors, you know, sets up time with me like every couple of months where she just wants to have a one-on-one and talk about, you know, choices I made or, you know, just asking about the past because I don't think we really do that <laughs> with the people that we're in the heat of battle with all the time, you know, we're just getting the work done and going and you never step back um, and have time where you can you can really use that person as a resource and you realize, oh, you, were, you weren't always just here working on, you know, a honey-baked ham ad you have all this wealth of knowledge that I could tap and these different experiences, and you don't always talk about them all the time because there are all these other issues that are lined up in front of us. But being, you know, making the time and and doing it yourself. Go up and ask for it. It's actually quite flattering when somebody comes in and says, hey, I want to be you in Ten years. I want to do it faster than you. You know. So can can I come in and talk to you about a couple things? And this bothers me when somebody does this, You know, this and this and this. Blah blah blah. What did you ever do when you came across this? You know, I like that. So, I'm sure whoever, yeah, you want to ask about will like it too.
0: And the next question is from Kate, who asks, "How do you know when to sort of?" Um, Give up on an idea. How do you know when to kill an idea versus something that shows promise that you should keep pursuing and continue to to develop?
1: I would say usually it's the it's a combination. Sometimes it's the timeline. You know, sometimes it just can be so succinct. You're like, this one's too hard. Nobody's nobody's generating stuff off it. This can't be a platform. The, it's easy, I'll tell you, it's easier to kill things off when it's supposed to be like a three to five year platform because you can tell when it doesn't have enough legs sooner than when you're trying to work, let's just say, hey, we need to do another lottery script for this new game that came out. And you know, you're looking at three spots on the wall and like any one of these could work, we just need to maybe massage this a little bit here or this here <laughs> or something like that. Um, so it's it's definitely easier for me in my mind to kill platform ideas. Bigger platform things because I can link them back strategically, and I can see if they're if they have life or not. So those usually will die after you give them a day or two if they if nothing's happening. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I don't know if there's an exact replica because you know it's it's ideas are grouped in different ways, but I think when you just feel when you have it all out there together and you're like, ah, then sometimes you have to ask yourself different questions when you're killing ideas. You know, like, am I, okay, first of all, I was just trying to get this going and get people inspired by seeing that you can make work against this thing. And then you're like, okay, what do I really want to make? This stuff. I don't even want to show them that stuff, you know? So then you just kind of block it down and then out of this stuff, um, this is the best. This is the stuff that I will, like, stab myself in the eye if we don't make tomorrow. You know, and then you just think like, which one are you gonna stab yourself in the eye the most? And then that's the one that you take in.
0: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: which one are you gonna feel the most regret?
0: <laughs> that's great, great advice. Um, so I would love to just touch on on the subject of of female leadership in advertising and specifically in creative. So this whole this whole project kind of came about because. As I look around the BBDO network, I saw these incredible women leading offices and companies and groups of companies. And then the dialogue in the press is always you know, that there's not enough female leadership. So it just be, you know, started as kind of a, a, an exploration of that topic in some ways of, of what's the inequity? What are we missing here? Or what are we doing? Maybe what are we doing well at BBDO that others aren't doing? I'm not sure. I think it's, most, it, it, it's really fascinating when you look at the data that actually, across a lot of leadership roles, um, the industry has less challenge in, um, say, account management than they do in creative. So, as a creative leader, I'm just curious if you have any theories about what it is that might be built into the system that we have fewer creative leaders um, than we should. You know, are there, are there, I don't know institutional mechanisms or just ways of working that that um you know don't favor women enough or or is there something breaking down that we can we can work on
1: um yes, I think there are there is a reason why there are fewer women, and I think you know obviously over the last two or three years there's been more of a um, i guess a a commitment to having more women in leadership roles—it's a hot topic. Um, I, for the first 17, 18 years of my career, it wasn't such a hot topic. So I guess we, you know, we'll be like, "Yay, it's, <laughs> it's happening now!" <laughs> but uh, so let's let's take it, you know, make it count. But um, I think as far as just in the creative, because you're right, like you know, there's, there are producers, account people that um, that excel and have uh, more women leaders than creative directors. And it could be because of life choices is one of them, I think. Um, I have two kids. I have a 12-year-old and a 9-year-old. Uh, but I also have a husband, the horse guy, who is fantastic and has a uh, a bit of a more flexible schedule. So if I didn't have that, um, I don't think I would be in the position that I could be to stay late and, and you know, keep working ideas and that's what I'm passionate about. Obviously I'm passionate about my family too, but um, you know, I, I have an insatiable desire to keep making things and this is the industry that allows me to do that. Um, and for better or for worse, there are long hours that are involved with doing that. And man or woman, I think it's just the type of person you are that you're drawn to that. So um, I just wish it was a little more uh, Inviting for more women to have that that lifestyle, and and I think just as an industry, we need to be more flexible um, on on where the work gets done. I'm more flexible here. I have one of my creative directors is uh, a woman who has a one-year-old baby, and on most Fridays, she works from home. Uh, she works from home until two a.m. Uh, I, you know, she's writing me, she's sending me things. Not that I want her to, but like this is a hardworking person who gets her stuff done. So when she gets it done, if it's up, when she's up with a baby at 2 a.m. or if, I don't care when she gets it done, I know she's gonna get it done. So I think we just need to be a little more flexible so that people can have sides of that and you don't have to have kids to get that flexibility either i think because sometimes people slap my hand and say well what are you going to do for you know people in my life i don't have kids but i you know my my time is valuable and i agree everybody's time is valuable so um i think there should be flexible whether you know you have a, a family you're going home to or a passion outside of work that you're engaging in so yeah i think that'll help
0: that's great that's great advice and it does seem like you know in a creative profession especially, there can be so much more flexibility because you, you're, you're thinking of ideas no matter where you are. So it really doesn't matter if you're in the office or not because you're, you know, you're constantly, you probably think of your best ideas outside the office more often than not. You know? So um, the fact that you can be flexible on things like location and timing um, should be an advantage, not a disadvantage, yeah. hopefully. Yeah, and as long um, as you're
1: showing up with the work. That's that's great.
0: Yeah, and and there's there's uh, yeah there there are a few jobs in the world where you can be more clear about what your productivity is at the end, where you say, well, that's what we made, and that's there's the ideas. Yeah. Um, just building on the on on the the um, integration of kind of your you know your family and and demands of work. I wonder how you approach the whole topic of. Uh, of work and and home, you know, balance or integration or whatever term you want to use. Some people say, "Well, the ba- the idea of balance is is out the window." Like we all work insanely hard, so it's really about integrating the aspects of your life from you know how you're spending time with your kids to spending time at the office. Um, but how do you, how do you approach it?
1: Um. Well, I. It's. <laughs> Try to, balance, that's a tricky one. Um, So, I would say, I mean, we've, my kids are a little older now, so they kind of have, they have a lot of stuff they're doing after school, too. So, after work, after school. So, um, you know, I try to be home for dinner at least three nights a week during the, you know, during the week, have dinner, um, and, if I can't make it, then I'm at home for at least an hour before they go to bed and spend time with them. Is that the kind of question you're asking, Jim, or am I asking? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, yeah. Th-
0: that's exactly it. Yeah. It's just around, you know, how do you approach sort of, um, you know, w- what you were just getting into, it sounds like, is having specific target goals and then having flexibility around those goals. So oh, yeah, I want to be home for this many nights.
1: Yep, I'll, I'll do that um, if I have a, a school Function that I know I my kids would hate it if I missed. Um, I put it in my calendar just like a client meeting, right? Make sure that I go to it. Make sure I'm. Cl- I've. I've. Everybody knows about it. Um, I try to incorporate. You know, if there's an experience that I'm, I know I'm going to have for work. So like in February, there's this worldwide um, yeah. meeting, right? Um, the week before, my kids are on break, so it's like, hey, instead of doing some other you know, imagining we're going to go on vacation for two weeks and Spain at some other you know time in the future. Why don't we make this happen and you know bring the kids to London for the week prior and let's let them get a taste of this experience too, so that it's not just me always going off. So right, you know, just trying to to find those moments where you know it's worth it for me because it's satisfying that that need to make stuff and be a part of ideas and get that energy from it. But I want that time I'm away to be worth it for my family and my kids too. So I want them to be able to reap some of those benefits.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's great. uh, There's a lot of wisdom in that for me. And um, I know when my kids were younger, for example, I always thought that to some degree, you being off doing the things you have to do to, to move your career forward is an important lesson for them to learn too. You know, it doesn't mean... You want your kids to never see you, but there is an aspect of like, you know, hard work equals reward, and so they need to understand that too. If you're able to, yeah. you know, um, be it absolutely everything, that's great if you can be flexible, but there's also, it, some of it depends on sort of how you frame the, frame the situation, I guess. Maybe I'm just rationalizing (laughs) it. There's there's
1: a little post-rationalization, but that's okay, it's good.
0: (laughs) Thank you, Robin, I appreciate the therapy. (laughs) I'm buying it,
1: I like it, I'm prescribing to it. That's good.
0: (laughs) Um, Well, listen, thank you so much for um, spending time with us. I think um, my hopes for having our first um, woman who runs BBDO chief creative officer um, my, my greatest hopes were far exceeded just by hearing your, um, your great wisdom and um, I love your um, maternal analogy for how to build ideas which is something I've never ever heard before of uh, you know if an idea is really good let's get married and have kids
1: yeah let's make
0: some babies <laughs> <laughs> that's fabulous um, well anyway Robin thank you so much I want to make sure everyone um, gives you a big a big warm thank you oh, thank you We really appreciate your time. Uh,
1: Thanks for letting me spend some time in California today. I appreciate the sunshine. All right.
0: (laughs) Hope you enjoyed the sun.
1: I did. Bye, you guys. Thanks.
0: Thanks again, Robin.